Good afternoon and welcome to The Finance Show. This is the show where we try and make sense of the world of personal finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. My name's Ruben Zelwer, I'm a financial planner and principal at Adapt Wealth Management and I'm joined again by my co-host, good friend, financial planner at True Pride and improving golfer, Craig Bigelow. Craig? Hello mate. I'm excited about the show today, mate. You have said that a couple of times, and if anyone could see the smile from across the other <laughs> side of the room, we'd, we'd all know. Yeah, well, the reason why I'm excited, about, I've, I've tried to think of a few names for this show. Uh, one of them is Bubble Trouble, <laughs> right? Uh, the other one is just Investment Stuff-Ups. Yep. Um, the other one is Boo Boos. Right. Right, so I'm not sure what I'll call it, but the reason why I'm excited about it is today we're going to talk about some investment mistakes okay and it's really therapeutic to do that cleansing exactly so we're going to talk but we're going to it's talk about our own yep. right because we're not just going to pick on other people but we're going to pick on some other people as well perfect and we're going to have a phone conversation with tim farrelly he's a guy i respect a lot he does uh consults to financial advisors helps us in you know choosing investment portfolios for clients and he's going to talk to us about how you potentially avoid market bubbles and subsequent crashes sounds sounds like a it is an interesting show i can see why the glee's on your face it's gonna be good so craig what do you reckon should we start off with uh mistakes or should we pick on other people first uh why don't we go thus we'll open the floor all righty well i'm gonna let you start oh that's nice of you <laughs> <laughs> well i did i've got two as well i know you mentioned before that you've got a couple um i shared one last week so I'll, I'll tell another one that I made um, I was 16 so I was at school I was in year 10 and I'd done my research into into shares and I'd saved up money doing pamphlet delivery and everything since I was about 11 and um, I had an amount of money that I was pretty proud of so I had about eight eight to ten thousand dollars saved up ready to go into some shares and um, I'd done my research I'd followed everything I knew and I wanted to buy some billabong shares so, um, Billabong at the time were a dollar forty, and uh, my dad, in his infinite stock advice wisdom, he forced me to buy Telstra too. Um, nice. So instead of Billabong, instead of Billabong, yeah. So to give you a bit of an idea of what that ten thousand dollars was worth in the subsequent years, in what I did, it went from seven dollars forty a share with Telstra to about $3.80. So my $10,000 as a kid went to about 5 Yeah. Um, Billabong went from about $1.39 to $16. Yeah. So the the 10000 would have gone to about 100 right. So I don't know about any advice you've taken from your parents before, <laughs> but I think you could imagine how many times I've reminded my old man about the money that he owes me yeah. <laughs> for the advice that he gave without, a, without formal documentation or taking it no. any consideration. So there was two sides to that. There was obviously the investment that wasn't great and yep. there was the opportunity cost. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I guess um, just so you know, my dad's not a stockbroker. No. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, uh, and he's copped it a fair few times as a result of, um, yeah. as a result of his tips. Yeah. So uh, for me, I guess the lessons out of that were to trust yourself um, yeah. it, and then I sort of later disproved that theory. I, I think the one I mentioned last week kind of showed the other side that I make mistakes as well. That's right. But also, 
then at least I could only blame myself. And I guess Dad did it with all good intentions, and I do joke about it. But um, it was his it was his understanding of that time. Yeah. And had I held Billabong, they're now back to a dollar something anyway. Well, that's so, right. They, they, um, they went into some real troubles. Didn't the CEO end up getting kicked out? He got he, done for fraud. Yeah, so he and forged, then he lost all his money. Yeah, he's gone bankrupt. And, yeah, he, he forged his wife's signature on yeah, loan docs. Yeah, that's right. And um, now he's, a, he's about to go to jail, actually. So, nice. Yeah, so... Um, also, it's good you got your money it, out. Oh, it works out. Yeah, nice. <laughs> what about you, mate? Uh, well, both of mine are sort of GFC-related. Okay. All right, so... Once again, I used to, um, once upon a time, I thought I was a good stock picker. Okay. Right? I don't really do that so much anymore. People might be surprised to hear I'm a financial planner, but not a stock picker. But I help clients with their overall strategies and leave the actual day-to-day stock picking to investment managers or you know a passive index. But once upon a time, I fancied myself as a bit of a stock picker, right? And I had a couple of absolute horrible ones. Now... You heard of Rams Homelands? Yeah. Yeah. So they were um they were obviously pretty big in terms of home loans competing with the big banks. Um and basically what happened was is though they the way they sourced their money, so most banks obviously for their mortgages, they source their money from deposit holders, right? It's a pretty stable mm-hmm. source of money, place to get money from. But these guys, these non bank guys, they'd have to source it from the credit markets. What that means is they'd sort of go over to America and borrow money there and then they'd odd lend it, Mm -hmm. right? So a little bit of a less reliable funding source. So these guys, um, that's where they source their money from and it was was called what term short-term lending. Mm -hmm. So they're really, they're borrowing money short-term and they're lending it long-term, right? So you can see the potential problems there. So anyway, in July 2007, uh, these these shares floated at $2.50. The owner... I've got his name, Kinghorn, I think it yeah. is. John Kinghorn, maybe. Uh, sold all that at two dollars fifty, right? And I bought twelve and a half grand's worth, right? Then what happened was pretty soon after the GFC hit, and all their sorts of funding just dried up. Yep. Right. So three weeks later, the stock fell to fifty-five cents. Yep. Um, and and then eventually I sold out for twenty-eight cents on the thirtieth of November, two thousand and seven. So I lost 90% in five months, but it did actually fall as low as four cents at one point. Okay, so that did you, was... Did you think of buying more? No. Nah. Never at four cents? I didn't, know. I didn't. I was just probably cowering. Crying. I was probably cowering. <laughs> or maybe I was burying my head in the sand and just ignoring it. <laughs> and it's actually hard to remember this. I had to go yeah. back and look at my tax returns. Anyway, in the end, this it was still a legitimate business. In the end, it um, you know the business kind of survived. They managed to get funding. Mm. And in 2014, the guy who sold out initially mm-hmm. made an offer to buy it back at a fraction. Yeah. Anyway, he didn't quite in the end, but he bought it. Um, it ended up getting bought out for 51 cents by another by another company. So, yeah, that was that. That was my horrible stock tip. They called it the worst float of the decade, Craig. So. Mate, it's. Uh, I think the thing with that is that I don't know anyone who hasn't had one of those stories. Yeah. Like, well, if you've been investing and you haven't had a loss, you haven't been trying hard enough. Really, yeah. it's sort of that theory, isn't it? And absolutely. Did that? Did that shape, or how did that change any future decisions that you? Uh, I think what changed, or probably maybe didn't change it immediately at the time, yeah. but it, it changed my just my thinking around 
trying to pick these sort of smaller type companies and yep. trying to think you're going to make money out of it because you know something about it. Mm. It just sort of started turning me off that. And it probably yep. took a while before I totally jettisoned that. You okay. Know, that holding anything other than the really big sort of stocks directly, you know, to try and pick the small ones. I don't know. When you're not spending your time day in, day out doing it, when you're doing, you're seeing clients, you're doing a whole lot of other stuff, it's just not what I wanted to do and not what I was good at. Well, so. you mentioned you mentioned the golf love before. I heard a really good quote the other day about people getting into the stock market. It's yeah. like jumping on the golf course, playing against Tiger Woods, there's a few holes in front of you. <laughs> and, and I think it's a really good analogy. Like These guys are there to take your money. Like yeah. People that are trading stocks are really there to play. Uh, like prey on those vulnerable people aren't they you know that yeah. that are there and it's their it's their business to make money off other people and yeah. um they also say it about poker if in the first 45 minutes you weren't haven't worked out who the schmuck is you. you're the schmuck <laughs> i think also what happens is sometimes like we think we have this extra piece of information that no one has and you get fooled and by that you think you're you're smarter than everyone yeah and, and the closer you get to it to a stock you know the actual more vulnerable you are yeah um because you kid yourself to think you've got it um, should we do another one of our own or should we just start hopping into other people? Well, why don't you do your other one? I'm keen to hear your two. Well, the other one was also pretty ugly. It was it was GFC time as well. Mm-hmm. So I can probably lump these two into one. A group called Centro Property Group. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They, they owned like massive shopping centres around Square. Australia and yeah. the US. Just, ma- you know, they were... CPG, weren't they? CPG? The yes, yeah. yes. So anyway, these guys... And, and you know, they, bought, they had good properties. Good you know, assets, good really good of, assets. Uh, you know, retail properties, mainly retail. Mm. Anyway, they they borrowed a huge amount of money, mm. though, to fund it, huge amounts of money. And they their borrowings came up for sort of renewal exactly at the wrong time, yeah. right? It all came up just when the all the credit markets were freezing. So they, I, I bought them um, in November 2007 for six bucks, Yep. right? Very soon after, like literally a month later, that all their refinancing of their debt came due, and all the banks just said, "No, nah, <sighs> we're not. We're not refinancing it." Even though they had decent assets and everything, just their timing was horrible. Anyway, shares fell down to forty-five cents. So, mate, I know that you've your property investments were, you know, they took a hit, but in terms of overall wealth, they were you could afford to lose it. Yeah, I had. I had a friend who bought the exact same stock and he's one of those guys that wanted to be rich yesterday. Yeah. His accounting firm actually basically leveraged their whole office and it went from, uh, I think it went, when it started it was low, went up and he borrowed more and he ended up having a $250,000 mortgage against his home oh my on, God. A use, uh, on a worth, and it actually went further south than 44 cents. I think it went to yeah. like two cents. Oh, in the it, end. Yeah, it ended up getting like, wound up. In the end, the, the, the lenders effectively took control of the company so he, he had $250,000 worth of debt on Jeez. no asset so oh wow yeah. yeah this wasn't I hadn't used leverage for this he, so. I mean, he was a 20 26 year old kid Jeez. it was his first investment outside like he'd built he'd done really well like built yeah. assets in property and then went made this massive push and thought he was killing it and then yeah. uh, it quickly quickly yeah. unraveled and it happened really fast didn't it oh yeah it mm. really fast and you know as I said it was decent it was just a lot of leverage I mm. think in both those cases it was just a lot of borrowings yeah. and just really bad timing. So, you know, but there have been plenty of wins as well. Maybe we'll talk that in another show, but somehow I like talking about the losses. Yeah, it makes us real. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what was your second one? Um, so I think my other one was, I, uh, I I mentioned it last week, the protected equities portfolio oh, yeah. that I bought. Yeah. It was way too complicated. These structured products, I had absolutely no idea how to do it. And I bought it for two reasons. Number one, 
another person in the office had, had bought it and I thought, yeah, cool, I want to be want to be like everyone else and also because um, we were looking at recommending it to people and I've always had a rule for people that I work with that I wouldn't recommend anything that I didn't own personally. Yeah, I have the same rule. And um, so for me, I wanted to feel it before anyone else did and yeah. oh, to be honest, I'm really, really glad I did because... I, I just don't want this feel. The feeling's bad enough when it's for me, but to have that feeling for someone else that you've put them into that situation, I think would be, well, I can't even tell you how much worse that would be for mm-hmm. me personally. But um, I'm, I borrowed $50,000 to invest um, and only had to pay the interest on the loan for the three years. And then it came due, I bought in November 2007 and the index on the Australian market was 6,385 and to give you some quantum it's still at 5,731 today so it still hasn't come back to where it was almost 10 years ago and um, so that again I took out of it was I had to do my own research have an exit strategy because I couldn't afford to continue with the investment so always have an exit strategy and number three is never be forced to sell i don't want to be forced yeah. to sell anything yeah. and um i've yeah. sort of stuck to that from that there but yeah. but that was a pretty big mistake as yeah. a kid um yeah. i was 24 so yeah. um and really my first four like first forays into investing have been really poor i had the shares and then i had a good one with the margin lending stuff um in the early 2000s but um yeah, the the next big one I went for basically put me back again. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think these one our personal stories are going to pale into insignificance. I hope so. Now that we can start picking on some other people. Oh, I I feel a lot better reading some of those. <laughs> All righty. So I'm going to go first with this one. Right. I'm going to talk about Alan Bond. Okay. Right. Alan Bond was a national hero, a self-made billionaire, also a disgraced tycoon and uh, jailbird. But he made a fortune in uh, property development. Uh, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And then he actually um, you know, invested a huge amount of money in America's Cup, which we won in 1983. Yeah. So, What did Bob Hawke say about that? Uh, anyone who doesn't get the day yeah, off. Yeah, anyone who doesn't get... Yeah. <laughs> anyone who fires Any someone. boss who doesn't give someone a day off is a... <laughs> bum. Bum, that's right. <laughs> but anyway, all that stuff wasn't enough for Alan, right? The property development and, uh, and America's Cup. He actually decided he wanted to get into the television business, mm-hmm. right? And in 1987... He paid $1.05 billion for the Australian-wide Channel 9 television network okay. from Kerry Packer, no less. In, Kerry Packer's business company was PBL. Mm-hmm. So he paid $1.05 billion for that. In 1992, Bond was declared bankrupt with debts totaling $1.8 billion. <laughs> right, $1.8 billion. Kerry P- Packer then bought Channel 9 back from him for $250 million. Right, and then this is the best quote of all time. Kerry Packer said, "You only get one Alan Bond in your lifetime, and I've had mine." <laughs> so good, isn't that uh, brilliant? I can't wait for my Alan Bond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that that was a, that's a great one. Well, you, now you go. All right. Well, um, I did a bit of uh, bit of research, and I you, you see this pop up occasionally online, and they sort of talk about when you're having a bad day, think about this bloke, and. Um, we, we all know the Apple story. So the two famous people when it comes to Apple are uh, Steve, Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak, the two yep. that started the company. But there was an un- or lesser known third party at the start and um, his name was Ronald Wayne. 
And Ronald was a little bit older than these two 20-year-old kids who were kicking around in their, in their garage. I don't know if you've heard the story. I have. But um, he was in his 40s working at Atari at the time. And he came in to settle a dispute between the two of them pretty early. And the way that he handled the argument so well, the Jobs and Wozniak sort of said, mate, why don't you come on board and we'll give you 10%. So he bought a 10%, well, he owned the 10% share. He was on the original contracts as being a 10% Apple shareholder. He also drew up the first uh, shareholder agreement. He designed the first logo and also came up with the first manual. So he had a pretty pretty significant role when it came to that. Um, About 12 weeks after getting involved, he got cold feet and uh, got out because he, he had a bad business dealing before and he sold his shares for... $800. Mm. So 10% for 800 bucks. The current valuation of those shares, have a a guess. What do you think it would be? If he held onto them all this time? 500 million. It's 62.93 billion. What? Yeah. Jeez. So he got out of it early. He maybe might have missed the boat (laughs) on that one. But the other thing that kept happening to him was that he seemed to make poor decisions regularly. So mm. he actually had a copy of the original the original shareholder agreement and he found it when he was going through his office and um, he was clearing out old paperwork and he actually sold it to a signature collector for 500 bucks in 2000. That same collector sold it at an auction in 2011 for $1.6 million. <laughs> <laughs> So, Oh, I, that's funny. It makes our, our things really feel funny. a little bit... Makes me feel a little bit better, I guess. That's but funny. The the interesting part is he doesn't regret it. He's living yeah. off he's living off social security in yeah. um in Las Vegas. Yeah. But he said that he doesn't regret his decision at all. And mm. um apparently Jobs tried to get him back in a number of times, flew him out to all the Apple launches, paid for his flights, all that yeah. sort of thing. So he wasn't interested. Not interested. So yeah. I think that's the thing. He, he dealt with it in a way that doesn't, you know, he didn't cry about it for yeah. forever. Well, but, obviously the money wasn't. Yeah, there's a massive factor in his life or what he attached his happiness to, I guess. Yeah, but like, uh, yeah, who knows? And, and you know, he was just the kind of person that doesn't look back. You'd hope so. I, maybe they just got that way because if he did, he'd, <laughs> he'd, be, <laughs> he'd, want to he'd never get on with his day. So it seems to be your one, you're talking about missed opportunities and I'm talking about um, guys who lost their dough. Yeah, I guess he... But, but it is the same thing in a way, isn't it, really? Yeah. Well, I guess two sides of the same coin. Yeah, true. You're right. It's sort of, yeah, he went the wrong way, yeah. uh, made the wrong call, and, and some of these ones have gone into it and got out, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, right. They are kind of missed opportunities or or big losses. Exactly. So, look, the one other one I just wanted to talk about, which was another, this was around the dot-com boom in 2000. So, Time Warner at the time was like the you know one of the largest entertainment companies you know, it owned HBO, which mm-hmm. was a maker of Entourage, among other things. Uh, you know, cable television, Warner Music, etc. But it was having trouble getting into the online world, right? And America Online was a pioneer of the internet, right? In the in the early nineties, they did all the dial-up internet, mm-hmm. and you know that. Can you do that sound for the dial? <laughs> <laughs> so that was America Online, right? That was their big. That was their business. You can wonder why that didn't last, but. Um, anyway, so, but Time Warner were having trouble getting into that internet world. So they figured, well, why don't we merge with AOL? And they did that in January 2000, uh, which was at the height of the dot-com boom. And the market capitalization uh, at the time was $350 billion for the two of them. So the Time Warner chief executive said, 
It's going to create unprecedented and instantaneous access to every form of media and to unleash immense possibilities for economic growth, human understanding and creative expression. But that didn't quite play out that way. The dot-com bubble burst and all the AOL, a lot of the AOL subscribers on the internet left. In 2003, America Online was written off for $99 billion. Of that 99 out of that $350 billion... And then in 2009, years later, they actually demerged, so they got rid of it again. But just to give you an idea of the loss, right, in 2015, AOL was bought for $4.4 billion, mm-hmm. right? So that was worth $4 billion AOL. And the market cap of Time Warner, which was what was left of it, was $74 billion, right? So that's in 2015, the value effectively of the two of them was $80 billion, mm-hmm. compared to $350 billion in 2000. So, you know, time doesn't heal all wounds. No. They're big numbers, aren't they? Massive. Yeah. Massive. And you know, that was just that was just absolute irrational exuberance. I mean, that was internet mark one. I mean, obviously mark two was when it actually did become legitimate businesses, you know, maybe ten years later or so. So they, they in hindsight they seem so obvious, don't they? Like, yeah. I think that's the thing. It's like in hindsight those things seem so clear. And and I don't know about you, but at the time I was I, I thought I was gonna be a school in there. Like, I thought I yeah. could retire off the money that I yeah. made and um if in hindsight it was the dumbest thing I've ever done yeah. some of these things and um, I think that's the difference you know like, I, I, how do you get that foresight into to what is there um, before it actually happens and not having to be the person that carries the tin of the massive loss yeah well look, I'm really hoping that our next our next guest is going to shed some light on that I, I, think, I think Tim uh, I think Tim might have something to say about how you get out of the way of those big bubbles I'm taking notes Take notes. Uh, we'll go to a song, I think. Yeah. And then we'll um, then we will try and get Tim on the phone. Welcome back. You're listening to J Air Radio, either live or on podcast. And we have with us now Tim Farrelly. Tim Farrelly is an asset allocation specialist. He helps us financial planners make good decisions for our clients. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Ruben. Well, I've got Craig here with me as well, my co-host. G'day, Craig. Hi, Tim. How are you, mate? Very good, thank you. Now, Tim, we'll just give me a couple of doozy examples of some real big mistakes that have been made. I've been listening. You've been listening? listening. (laughs) You've been listening? What did you think of them? Wow, as you say, they are absolute doozies. Um, One of the things that you mentioned in a sort of a, but not directly, was one of the best ways to avoid those sort of things is to make sure you're well diversified. So if you do happen to stumble across one of those, then the damage is not too big. I think in some of the cases you mentioned, it's because not only they paid way too much for an asset, but they put everything into it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Really good point. But I think, you know, we were talking before about all these things are really good in hindsight, you know, and so I guess what I wanted to speak to you about is, well, how do you, how can you have some foresight about this? How can you see these things and, and get out of the way, or, 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 or can you? I think you absolutely can get out of the way of a lot of these things. Now, I'm going to make a distinction firstly between individual stocks and with broad markets. So, you know, individual stocks, you do get an apple that comes along every now and then, which, what was it, $400 turns into $15 billion or whatever the number was. You know, that does happen. But it doesn't happen with broad markets. So if we're talking about the share market as a whole, 
then you, that kind of thing doesn't happen. But every now and then the market behaves as if it's going to keep on growing forever. But economies can only grow at certain rates, and as a result of that, profits can only grow at about that sort of same kind of rate. And no matter what the excitement at any given time, there are real limits to how fast companies as a whole can uh, own it, how, how fast they can grow. And where that becomes relevant, if you are putting together diversified portfolios, then you really are limited to a large extent by how much sort of returns can come out of the market as a whole. You may do a bit better if you're picking some good stocks uh, or picking some good fund managers, but you're not going to do enormously better. But buying, so, so, sorry, Tim, but buying the whole market at times doesn't help either, does it? Because oh, absolutely, there absolutely. Can, there can be times where it all the whole market falls enormously. That's right. So if if you're going to do follow the first rule, which was, I'm going to be reasonably well diversified. Uh, so I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket, which I think is entirely sensible. Now you're saying, well, I'm pretty much going to get what the market gets. I might get a bit more, a bit less, but that's the kind of return I'm going to get. And that's the time when you really want to be on the lookout for saying, is this market as a whole dramatically overpriced? And I think when you start looking at things as a whole, you can get a much better sense of is this market tremendously overpriced or good value or not. And I think you can do it in advance. There is a major, there is a major catch to what I've got to say, but we'll come to that. But you know, the process I use is basically saying the returns I get are income plus growth. And if we're talking about the share market, my income is my dividend yield. And I'm, for Australian equities, I throw in the franking credits. The moment you're getting at about five percent return there, and then the next thing you say is, well, how fast, how much growth will I get? And the growth comes from two areas. The main area in the long term is how fast profits grow, and this is where the market can get pretty excited because you see individual companies like Apple, Macquarie Bank's another one, CSL um, uh, companies like that. They have had phenomenal growth for a number of years. But if you draw out a broader portfolio of the market as a whole, inevitably, whether it's in the United States, in Australia, the UK, Europe, wherever you go, profit growth comes around down to about a couple percent better than inflation when you look at over meaningful time periods, and by that I mean seven to ten years or so. So you're pretty much locked into profit growth that's going to be, you know, in Australia going ahead, 4 or 5% a year or something like that. Maybe down to 3 It's that kind of range. So if I've got a company, they're growing their profits by, call it 4% a year, it should be that the share price grows at 4% a year. But that's only if everybody pays the same amount for a dollar of profits down the track as they do today. And if today you're having to pay a crazy price for a dollar of profits, then the chance that it will go to normal somewhere down the track. Now, what is a crazy price is a good question. Normally, Australian shares, you've got to pay about $15 or $16 to get $1 of profits. And the jargon is the price earnings ratio, but just think about it as how much you have to pay to get a dollar of profit. Well, if you're paying $10 to get a dollar of profits, you're not only going to get your earnings growth, but you'll probably get extra growth because the market will go back to normal some stage in the future and start paying $15, $16 again. 
So you get not only earnings growth, but also people prepared to pay more for a dollar of profit. But the, the, the one that's really important is the one going the other way, the reverse one, which says, well, what is the market in the case of the uh, tech firm? The market on the whole in the United States was paying about $30 for a dollar of profit, about twice as much as it should do usually. Mm. Now, over a 10-year period, that takes about 7% off your returns. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. And literally, I was sitting there in 2000 going, well, I've got a dividend yield of one. This is in the United States. Earnings growth, probably three or four. And if things just come back to normal, I take seven off that, and I'm going to have negative returns over the next 10 years. Mm. And that's exactly what turned out to be the case. So that kind of sounds good. I mean, from where I was standing at that point, the US equity market was absolutely clearly in a bubble, dramatically overpriced. I would fiddle with all my assumptions. Oh, I could never make this thing stack up. And at that time, uh, I could buy government bonds and get a 6% yield. Well, what's interesting there as well, though, Tim, is that you know, you're saying that that was the average return you were going to get over the next 10 years. Yeah. But really what happened in the next year, you lost about 70 or 80% in one year. That's right. It, it all happened very fast. And it doesn't always work that way. Mm. So, Tim, can, sorry to jump in, but how how does I mean this is your this is your day to day? You know, this is something that you do every single day. Yeah. What chances a mum and dad investor have, or at what point do they come to you and and learn or find this educational stuff that they need to know before doing this? Because I'd imagine a lot, not many people are doing the right amount of research before investing. Look, it, it, frankly, it's very difficult. Yeah. And the reason it's so difficult is there are so many people out there who sound incredibly credible. You're one of them, and, Tim. Well, I, I, yeah, I sound credible. <laughs> the, question is, the question is, am I one of the ones who actually are credible? <laughs> you know, for example, um, I saw a piece the other day where somebody said, look, I think that the Aussie banks are overpriced because in order to get a decent return out of them, They've got to grow their profits over the next 10, 20 years by 5% a year, and there's no way now they're going to do it. They're expensive. And you say, oh, that's fair enough. But the basic process this person was using was saying, look, if I've got a 5% dividend yield and I get 5% growth, I need a 10% growth to be investing in shares. Well, that was an entirely sensible bit of analysis in 2005 when bond rates were about 6 and says, okay, I need to get at least 10 to make it better than investing in bonds. Mm-hmm. But today bonds are about 2. Mm. And if I want to get 5% more, I really only need to get 7 still worth buying the shares. Mm. And then they also say, well, actually, what about franking credit? Mm. You know, for the banks, they're yielding about 55 but you can add in another 25 for franking credit. Mm. And so when I look at banks today, I say, look, I think there is almost no growth in them. Call it 1% a year. But if they can grow their earnings at about so if they're getting dividends about eight and they get one percent growth, there's a nine or ten percent return. Pretty happy with that. Yeah. And uh, particularly compared to TDs at three. Is is there any major fear, Tim, with this stuff? Um, you know, we looked at some of those big examples before of of industries that changed a lot dramatically and and sort of became a bit obsolete. So the AOLs, the example oh, Ruben gave, the banking structure as it stands has been in place for a long time and it seems to be one of those ones that's a bit open to to improvement uh, what are your thoughts on that i i i, I think there, there is out there are open to attack 
but they've also got some huge advantages. Yeah. You know, what, if you run the numbers and say, if I want to set up a mortgage business to go and compete against the banks, I've basically got to be able to borrow money at 2%. Yes. Mm. Now, who's going to give money to anyone else at 2%? The Japanese. <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But that's, that's the rate the banks borrow. Yeah. Because they've got access to the term deposit market. So mm. they've got some huge entrenched strengths as well. But the other thing about it is I'm only wanting to grow up 1% a year mm. and the economy is growing at 4 or 5. It, it says that, that, you know, people can make big inroads into their profits and I'm still getting a good deal. So what you're so saying... I look, I look at those and saying, that's a good deal. But there's someone who sounds just as credible, if not more credible, over there saying they're a terrible deal. I, I think also, um, just with Tim and what Tim does, I mean, Tim, you don't really uh, advise sort of direct to the public. Your influence is really through... You know the Absolutely. hundreds of financial planners who sort of subscribe to your newsletter and and your workshops and the like. So that's I guess how you get your view out, really, isn't it? That's that's correct. And and it's you know when we we sort of looking at the question of how do private investors get this sort of stuff? Well, it is difficult because as I said, lots of people sound credible, mm-hmm. and they're not all credible. You know, you you almost need to go one of two paths. You need to either Put yourself in the hands of a specialist, um, like one of you two guys, and you'll look at either direct stocks where you've got a good handle and put them out to fund managers, uh, or you've got to do an enormous amount of work yourself. Mm. Yeah. And you've got to think things through for yourself, and it really helps if you are quite mathematical. Mm. Because, you know, think, it, 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 this is an industry where it's full of attractive stories that actually don't add up. Yeah. And that is the stuff of bubbles, in fact. That is why bubbles exist, is because even the professionals fall in love with the good stories. In the tech boom, they just could see these companies going up forever. You know, every company was going to be an apple. And if every company was an apple, the market was fairly valued. But, you know, not everyone can be an apple. And so when you looked at individual companies, you could say, well, yeah, maybe that's worth that. But when you look at it across the whole industry and say, well, for these companies to be worth what people say they're going to worth, the economy has got to grow at about four times the rate that it ever has done in the mm. entire history of mankind. And that's pretty unlikely. So, so what you're saying as well is that it's kind of easier, if you like, to make those predictions across a, a whole market or a whole industry as opposed to an individual stock. Massively easier. Mm. Massively yeah. easier. Yeah. At an individual stock level... That really is the realm of professional stock pickers who spend all day, every day doing that stuff. Mm. And even they, by and large, about half of them beat the market as a whole and half of them don't. Yeah. So, so Tim, just doing the work's no guarantee for, to start off with. Tim, I heard a, a quote the other day that they were talking about those corny cliches you hear, like, you know, water under the bridge and don't cry over spilt milk and those sort of things. When it comes to investing, what are the ones that you've seen from long-term successful investors i mean you've got the access to a lot of these advisors um what are the what are the traits you see that are in common for the people who've done best you know the obvious this kind of sounds trite but it's buy low sell high yeah or or better still just don't buy high (laughs) you know yeah that's where you have trouble if you can just be in the markets most of the time you should get whatever TD rates are plus four or five percent, mm-hmm. and in the long term, that's a great return. Yep. Uh, and where you get into trouble is the occasional things like the tech boom. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, the Japanese share market is another great example. It went for a long, long boom throughout the 80s. Uh, from 1990 through to 2000, it fell about 85%. And it still hasn't recovered. Mm. And, you know, you say, well, we don't invest that much in Japan. But if you're a Japanese investor, you might have had a lot of money in Japan. Mm. <laughs> and it could happen here. It happened in the United States. I've got I've got another question for you, Tim. Just with regards to our um, well, local bias, I guess you're talking about that with the Japanese yep. market. Is is that something that um, that you find a lot of people struggle with? Like we're a pretty small market, being in Australia. Most of the people here would have a pretty high percentage of Australian shares. Yeah, it, this happens all around the world. Americans have too many American shares. Uh, the Brits have too many English shares, and so on. Yep. Have, having said that, there's a couple of things at play. Franking credits to him, yeah. In Australia, franking credits mean that you can put a lot more. Mm. Now, Australia is sort of like 2 or 3% of the world market. The numbers I run, it certainly makes sense to have a slight overweight to Australian equities compared to international equities. Mm-hmm. So, amongst your equities, you're 60% with Australia, 40% international. That's kind of about right, mm-hmm. purely because of franking credits. You know, you add 1.5% on your return, that's just a lot. Mm. Having said that, I think if they if credit didn't exist, everyone would still overweight to Australia. Absolutely, yeah. But, but there is, you know, there's a justification, even if it's not the reason that people do it. But there's a second reason which I think makes sense, is it seems like most people feel more comfortable with things they know than things they don't. And so if you're in an environment where I'm investing international shares and they go down 30 or 40%, which happens from time to time, investors seem to be more likely to hold on to if they're owning either direct stocks or a, stock, a, a, a fund that owns stocks that they know is full of BHP and Westpac and Rio and all that stuff, they're more likely to hang on rather mm. than saying, I've got no idea what this is. I'm out. So people have got a little bit more tolerance to risk that lets them get through the crises more with domestic assets. So I think that also justifies something of an overweight position. I think... Mm. But what's, uh, what's, interesting with that, what's interesting with that, Tim, is you're talking about the US market being hugely overvalued, right? So if I'm you know, sitting in America, uh, I'm living out there in Wisconsin and I've got my share portfolio, um, what am I going to do? Take it all out of America and put it in Australia? Yeah, well, that's very difficult because, you, well, one, you're not getting the franking credit, so you wouldn't do that. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I think the American market, it's, I don't think it's overvalued, but I think it's not nearly as good value as other markets at the moment. I would be underweighting it, but, you know, it's, if you've got the discipline to do it and you're sitting in the States, you probably ought to be saying, well, if I normally have 80% of my equities in the US, I should be coming down to 40 or 30 mm. or 20 Mm. And the more stretched it gets, uh, the more you should be out. Now, one of the things I think is absolutely easy to do ahead of time is to say, this is a bubble, and be correct. Unfortunately, there's a massive catch, and it's a huge catch. You have no idea when it's going to happen. So, for example, the Japanese equity market started looking in bubble sort of territory five years before it topped out. It went up a lot over the next five years. The U.S. share market uh, around the tech boom looked expensive about three years before it topped out. The Australian share market before the GFC 
looked expensive about one month before it topped out. So when things get expensive, we just don't know at all when this thing's going to roll over. Now, if you have the discipline to say, look, it looks expensive, I want out, what's even more important is you have the discipline to, to stay with that. Because the chance of it rolling over are very close to 100%, but it may take a long time. And the worst possible thing you can do is miss out on the big rise and then fall on the other side. And if, if I can give you a story, another one, someone else's horrible mistake. There used to be a life insurance company called City Mutual. I think in about 1984, it was taken over, given a fresh pet of paint called Capita, and it was the biggest, brightest new thing going around. They got a couple of really good fund managers who started running their money for them. In 1985, the Australian share market started looking expensive on exactly the same kind of measures that I've been talking about. And they sold out virtually everything. Australian share market then doubled over the next two years. Three months before the market topped out, these guys were sacked and they brought someone else in who said, no, I understand this stuff. And guess what they were holding at the time of the crash? Bond Corporation, Spalvins, all these guys, the ones you mentioned before, Ruben, and they pretty much got wiped out. Yes, so there was an example of an organisation that ducked the bubble or ducked the start of the bubble and got sucked in at the end. And the worst thing for them was they didn't get the big run-up, but they got all the run-down. So, so sometimes you've got to be prepared to give a bit of upside up. You've um, got to be prepared to give a lot of upside up from time to time. Yeah. But then sometimes it happens very quickly. Yeah. Know, the, the Aussie market looked overpriced. It was literally a month before the GFC mm. the part collapsed. So it's just a matter of saying, look, I don't want to own expensive assets, and I don't care what they do. You know, you kind of almost got to stop going to barbecues at this point. <laughs> All right, Tim. Well, um, we're just about running out of time. Thanks a lot for uh, for your time today, and and hopefully we get you back on again before the next uh, crash, so you can uh, you know, just point <laughs> to the signposts for us. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Bye, Craig. Bye, Ruben. Okay. Thanks, thanks Tim. Bye, bye. Okay. He's a smart bloke. I just I, I liked him. I, he explains things really clearly. <laughs> I, I mean, just in ways that I'd never. Never heard of you know yeah. how much you have to pay per dollar of profit. Yeah. You know that's a, it's just a really yeah. simple way of looking at it. Yeah, isn't I've it? been following him for a long time, and mm. you know, seeing as I said, so many different commentators. And I, when I probably came across Tim about seven or eight years ago, I was just like, this bloke makes sense, you know. Mm. And he doesn't have a barrow to push either. No. He's not employed by one of the big banks. He used to work for Macquarie years ago, but he's okay. been running his own show for you know ten, twelve years, and he doesn't answer to anyone. Yeah. It's um, it's a nice position to be in, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and he's just you know he's terrific. All right, we're going to get keep moving because we've only got about five minutes to go. Uh, we're going to go to our new uh, uh, sections. Well, the old section is the hack of the week, and I'm also got a new section which I'll let you introduce afterwards, Craig. Oh, right, perfect. Well, let's start with you with the hack of the week. So I know you gave me um, a little bit of stick last week about my hack of the week being so technically. Unsavvy, <laughs> what the piece of paper and pen, mate. You know what? Sometimes Might the old have been a space pen. Sometimes the old things. Are, maybe it was an erasable pen. <laughs> but um, this week, I thought I'd, I'd help out. Um, passwords are, are a big thing, and internet banking and all this sort of stuff is is something that we all use. Yeah. Um, I have two hundred and forty nine passwords. Two hundred and forty nine. 
So um, my memory is nowhere near good enough for doing this. And I'm sure that like everybody else, I got to the point where I started using the same one for everything. So it was saved in my phone. Um, the one password would pretty much have got, given you access to my whole life. And mm. um, I didn't feel really safe with that. So um, about 18 months ago, I've started using a, a program. There's a few of them. But the one I use is called Dashlane. Oh, yeah. And, I use uh, LastPass. LastPass, same sort of so, thing. Yeah. So basically what it requires is one password. Um, that gives you access to all of your other passwords and it'll pre-fill them for you on, nice. on internet websites. Nice. And also jumble your passwords. So if you do have security concerns, it'll give those long ones that are like yeah. five exclamation point underscore 65 49 exclamation point capital A. Yeah. I've just given you the password to my life. But um, <laughs> but it's the the good thing for me, I, I like it that it's available on multiple devices. Yeah, you can um, do it on your phone. And... Your phone, your iPad, all that sort of thing too. So nice. so check it out if you are looking for something like that. It's it's a really good one and it's it's changed our lot. And really for me having a remote business with staff in multiple locations. Yeah. Um, it's really helped me with control over that too. Terrific. So there's the old segment with a nice bit of tech. Yeah. But um, yeah, the propeller head of the week. Propeller head of the I week. I needed almost yeah. a drum roll for that. Well, we do need some. We're going to have to find some music for it. So propeller head of the week, I'm just going to give you like a technical sort of financial thing. It might be about super, it might be about tax, but just something that people may not know. So my propeller head of the week is about super contributions. Okay. So... Um, Generally speaking, if you're an employee, the only way to get money into super uh, tax effectively is by getting your, your boss to put it in by salary sacrifice, right? That's generally been the way. And there are lots of issues with that. Often, you know, you've got to deal with a payroll who will or will not act. In some cases, um, some employers will actually use your contribution in satisfaction of their, mm-hmm. their requirement. Uh, it's very hard to get the timing right. Sometimes they over-contribute, sometimes they under-contribute. If you're a salary earner, that's the only way you could do it, right? So you'd have to think of it well in advance. Now, one of the positive rules they're changing from 1 July is that individuals, even if you're a salary uh, owner yourself, a salary earner, you can actually yourself make tax-deductible contributions. So let's give you an example. Let's say um, let's say you're earning $100,000 a year, and the 9.5% that they're paying for is about $9,500. So previously, you'd have to get your employer to salary sacrifice that, now what you could do is you could, just before the end of the year, you could, you know, cut out a check, you know, $15,000 to get you to that, you know, $15,500 to get you to that 25000 So mm-hmm. it, it means you've got just more flexibility at the end of the year to actually make those contributions. That's really good. Um, and, so it's, and what's the mechanism for claiming it back? Uh, so basically it's you've got to give a form to the super fund. Okay. Uh, Same and thing. They, and they, they'll action that. And then you also obviously let your accountant know and then often the you know the tax office and the super fund kind of talk to make sure that it's all been done correctly. So mm. that's a good one. One of the positive things that has happening from one July seventeen, there are quite a few negatives, and we'll probably talk about that in another show. Um, but yeah, that's that's the propeller head of the week. I like it. Excellent. All right, Craig. Well, I think our time is basically um, basically gone now. It's been a good session. Uh, it was really great hearing Tim. Thanks again for, for co-hosting with me this week, and we'll see you all again next week. Said I need a dollar. Said a dollar is what I need. Said I need a dollar. Said a dollar is what I need. And I'll share with